0: Today on the show, Galatians chapter four. Welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Okay, so welcome back, guys. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be going verse by verse as we've been doing the last couple weeks. Uh, Today there is a catch. Uh, About 20 minutes or so, about 24 minutes into today's sermon, the audio equipment just glitched and it went silent. And we're missing about 20 minutes of the sermon, right in the middle. Okay, so I I, I struggled with this. Obviously, I'm not going to let that 20 minutes go away. So the the question was, do I just record the entire sermon in front of the microphone at home, uh, as I normally do when I'm podcasting? Or (laughs) do I record the missing 20 minutes and then splice it back in? Uh, I decided... That uh, for a couple reasons, a because of time, but b because I, I think you guys are really I've, I've been hearing that you guys have been really enjoying uh, hearing what it sounds like when I'm, I'm speaking in front of a group uh, with those venues. Uh, there is a different atmosphere, and with that, uh, it just feels different. It's 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 fun. So I went ahead and recorded. The 20 minutes of missing time, it ended up being longer than 20 minutes, uh, but be that as it may, you get a little bit of bonuses in there. I hope it's not too distracting when we bounce from uh, within the auditorium or, or sanctuary to right now, you know, in front of the microphone and then back to the sanctuary at the end. I hope that doesn't distract you guys too much. But uh, as things go, uh, you could say it was an attack. You could say it, a lot, say it was a lot of things. I really don't know. All I know is that the equipment failed me. Uh, in fact, I hate to say it, but part five, the entire part five is gone. The whole thing completely gone. It didn't record at all whatsoever. Uh, it was an absolute utter fail. A uh, lesson learned. I will not trust in other people's recording equipment, especially when I'm planning on putting this stuff online. Um, But whatever the case, I went ahead and recorded the entire part five already. It's already done uh, in front of the microphone here in my basement office. So actually, um, I'm a little disappointed because I know part five really turned out well there at the church. But uh, whatever the case, it turned out really good too as well when I recorded it uh, yesterday here in front of the microphone. So anyway, with that, guys, yes, I apologize. It is what it is. I live by technology. It's how I make my living. But there are moments when uh, technology really aggravates me. But anyway, let's go ahead and jump right in with this sermon that was recorded at a Calvary Chapel in Berthoud, Colorado. Uh, last week we talked about Galatians chapter 3, um, but just as a little bit of review on the book of Galatians, it was written by Paul, most likely when he was in Corinth. And uh, he had visited these Galatians on two different occasions and given them the gospel. And they received it. They accepted it. They were all about it. And they, and they trusted in Christ. But then Paul got news that the Galatians had been visited by another group called the Judaizers. Now these guys, they were Jewish Christians, okay, of sorts. And they believed that we are to follow all of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. So we must be circumcised in order to be saved according to their beliefs. We must observe the Sabbath. We must observe all the feasts. We must do all the other, uh, I think there's like 613 different laws in the Old Testament. You know, we must follow the law of Moses. And they even went as far as to claim that they were sent out uh, by the apostles, that they were sent out by even people like James and John and Peter. So, um, they had a backing. The Galatians bought into this lie and Paul caught wind that this was going on and he was really distressed. It bent him out of shape. And uh, he was so distressed that he went ahead and wrote the book of Galatians by hand, which is something that as far as we're aware hasn't happened anywhere else in the New Testament as far as Paul goes. He usually would dictate the book to somebody else, a secretary, and they would write it down. But this time he was, he was like, no, I'm going to write this. And uh, when we get to Galatians chapter 6, he even makes makes a comment that, you know, look at the large letters that I write in. Um, It's believed that he had some kind of an eye ailment. In fact, we're going to touch on that a little bit today. So getting to uh, the outline of the book of Galatians, uh, very easy to remember. Chapters 1 and 2 are personal. Uh, Paul's gospel is, was attacked, and his own personal character was attacked. And so in chapters 1 and 2, he's defending the divine origin of his gospel and also his apostleship. He's saying, hey, you know, I'm not some apostle that was sent out by just some men. I was actually appointed by Christ himself. Uh, Chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal, and we see uh, Paul gets down and dirty and really... Uh, doctrinally shows the inferiority of the law versus this new covenant that we now enjoy under grace. And then chapters 5 and 6, Paul gets practical and he talks about the moral and ethical considerations resulting from the knowledge that we're saved by faith. So questions like, okay, well, if we're under grace, is it all right for us to just go ahead and sin? I mean, do we have a license to just live how we want? And live like the devil. And the answer is, God forbid, no, no. But we'll get into that next week. We'll start talking about chapter 5. So um, last week, uh, some of the things that we talked about that are just worth mentioning, we did talk about justification and sanctification. What are those? And what are the differences between the two? It's really important to understand this. They're big words that generally, oftentimes, you don't ever hear from people. But justification is uh, that moment at which you trust in Christ. That very moment you are justified. Before the Father, you are sin-free. Christ has taken the sins. He has basically imputed his righteousness to your account. It's, It's as if he had credited you with his righteousness. And so that moment that you trust in Christ, if you trip and fall on your head and die on that very spot and don't even have a chance to do anything good, nothing, okay? You're saved. You've been justified. You're saved. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is not dependent, or, or, I'm sorry, your salvation is not dependent on your sanctification, okay? But sanctification is a logical outworking of the justification. It is that process of which you start the moment you get saved, where God starts cleaning you up. He starts showing you the sins in your life, and you start repenting of them, hopefully, and changing and becoming a better person. You don't get sanctified in order to be saved. You get justified, saved, and as a result of being saved, one of the evidences that God has saved you is that sanctification starts happening in your life. Make sense? Uh, Another thing uh, that we mentioned last week and the week before is we started talking about this promise made to Abraham. Well, that theme is going to carry on over into today. Um, and also, another concept we brought up last week, the law is our schoolmaster. Paul asked the question, well, what's the point of the law then? If it can't save you, what, what good is it? Well, it's a schoolmaster in the sense that uh, like a schoolmaster, like that Greek word is actually, it's, it's a Greek word that's talking about a slave in the master's house who takes care of the child and helps develop that child morally and ethically, helps raise them in an ethical manner, polices who they're having fellowship with, uh, and just makes sure that they grow up exactly correct. Well, Paul compares that to the law. It's a schoolmaster. It's teaching us morally and ethically. The Jews were under that for for, uh, 1,500 years or so, and um, it... In a very powerful way, taught them right from wrong, left some powerful lessons for us. And so moving into Galatians chapter one, or I'm sorry, four, guys, go ahead and crack open your Bibles to chapter four, verse one. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed of the Father. Really quick, I just talked about that word schoolmaster. There's a couple more words here. Guardians and stewards. Those are also Greek words, uh, you know, behind those words, that point towards uh, various slaves within a master's house. The guardians were entrusted with uh, caring for these underage boys, and the steward was entrusted with taking care of the land that was going to be passed on to the son when he got older, when he made it to that Appointed time. So this is a really cool uh, uh, analogy that he starts pulling together here. So in verse three, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness, the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your heart, hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of, Christ, of God through Christ. Wow. Amen. And so what's going on here? Paul's saying that the, being under the law, these Jews being under the law, it's similar to an underage boy in his, in his father's house And how, even though he's the heir, he really has about the same standing and authority as any one of the the, the servants, the bondservants in the household. And why is that? Like, typical American mindset nowadays, that's something we don't quite catch. But uh, back during the time of Christ, that made perfect sense to people. See, a son would not be officially an heir. He would be equal to his servants and actually below the servants in a sense because the servants would, would raise him okay, until the appointed time of the father when the father would take that boy down to the officials, kind of like the courthouse type deal, and they would declare him officially the heir. okay. So likewise, the Jews in the Old Testament, they were children of God in a sense, but they weren't heirs. They were under this law, they were under the schoolmaster, and they were awaiting that appointed time when the father would send his son and would die on their behalf, and they would be free of that. They would experience that liberty, that grace that we now get. So when a, when a Gentile trusts in Christ, uh, he's given that Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Adoption, right? Right where we can cry, Abba, Father. Did you plan that? Because that was perfect. The song that you sang tonight? Oh, you did plan that. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. I saw that I was like, wow, that's amazing. There you go. Russ did his homework. Um, right, and so uh, we're adopted into the family. What does it mean to be adopted? Basically, adoption is where you take somebody else's, your, somebody else's offspring and bring them into your family. Well, when we're given this spirit of adoption, we're adopted into Christ's family and we're made heirs. It's uh, unbelievable. Blows my mind when you really think about this stuff. Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17 says it this way For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Praise God. That is awesome. You now, Paul brings up there this, this um, bring bo- brought back into this bondage, and back into fear? What's he talking about there? Well, think about that. If you're under the law, okay, you don't understand grace, Christ hasn't died for you, and you're under the law, you are toiling, you are striving, you are struggling to be perfect. But knowing deep down inside, you just fall short. You can't do it. And it's a fearful thing. You never really have the assurance of salvation in that situation. And, of course, we do know that nobody has been able to keep the full law except Christ. And so, also, uh, he mentioned that, mentions that Jesus was made of a woman. I think it's worth mentioning because um, Jesus had to be fully man. He was fully God, right? He had to be fully God in order for there to be that infinite merit uh, that would be necessary to pay for all the sins of those who trust in him, past, present, and future But he also had to be fully man in order to be a substitute for mankind and take that penalty. So moving on to verse 8, Paul says, How be it then when you knew not God, you did service unto them by which, by which, I'm sorry, which by nature are no gods. Now the Galatians uh, were not Jews. okay? They were Gentiles. And before Paul had gotten there, they were worshipping as the Gentiles do. They were offering sacrifices to pagan gods, little g gods. Um, They were practicing astrology. Uh, They were doing all kinds of uh, um, witchcraft-ish practices. Okay, they even used things like amulets and talismans, ritually charged objects that uh, we still see today in witchcraft. Okay, But the most common thing is they were working their own efforts. They were pouring in their own efforts to try and achieve some sort of favor with these little g-gods, some sort of level of salvation, their own version, right? And so moving on into verse 9, but now after that you've known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Paul makes this comment, after ye have known God, and then it's almost as if he corrects himself mid-sentence, or rather are known of God. It's so good to know God, okay? But even the demons know who God is and they tremble. It's a whole other thing to be known of God Uh, In fact, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, Jesus uh, uh, says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. So yeah, it's a good thing to know God, (laughs) right? And to be known of him. But getting back to what Paul was trying to actually say here, why are they returning back to these weak and beggarly elements. And what were these weak and beggarly elements? What he's talking about is, no, they're not going back to their paganism. They're not trying to work to achieve some kind of favor with their little g-god. But it's very similar. They're going back to the law, and they're trying through their own efforts, through observing the Sabbath and circumcision and all these other things, they're trying to achieve their own salvation. They're trying to achieve their own justification And we all know that through the law, you cannot be justified. Neither through the law can you be sanctified. It can't happen. And so, uh, how were they trying to do this? In verse uh, 10, Paul gets into it a little bit. You observe days and months and times and years. What's going on there? The day is referring to like the Sabbath, the seventh day. Uh, The Jews were commanded not to do any work on the Sabbath, which sounds pretty good. Uh, <laughs> that sounds pretty easy, but yeah, there's some Saturdays where you've got a lot going on, and it's kind of hard to pull off. Um, <clears throat> but they would, they would be sure, because they were feeling they were under the law, they were sure that they had to observe the Sabbath. They also had to observe the feasts. Glenn talked about the feasts a couple months back, and how they are... Uh, types and shadows, they all point towards Christ. The feasts are so amazing. When you really get down and and look at all the things that God prescribed for them to do on these different feasts, and you see that every single little thing just says, Jesus, 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 everything. It just points right towards Christ. Unbelievable. Uh, In fact, if anybody wants to learn more about that, I do have a series on the feasts that I did a couple years back, and um, I spent a lot of time looking into the feast and getting all the details, and mm-hmm. it, it just, it's awesome. It's just good stuff. Um, but also, like, new moons, okay, months, uh, years, sabbatical years, like every seven years they were supposed to make their, if they were farming, they had to leave their field fallow, which um, makes sense. If you, if you keep growing and growing and growing and keep turning the soil over, eventually all the, the soil's just dead. All the microorganisms are dying. Uh, there's just not much for your plants to pull up in the roots, so you're, you, you start having a, you know, less and less crop. And so God would command them every seven years. The seventh year would be a sabbatical year. Don't till the ground. Leave it alone. Uh, and also they would have the year of Jubilee, that year uh, every 50th year where they would let all of their servants go, uh, among other things. And so, anyway, they would follow all of these, like Paul says, these days, these months, these times, these years. The question I get asked all the time online and in person is should we, Gentile believers, now on this side of the cross, should we, must we, observe the Sabbath? Must we keep all these feasts? Like I said, it's awesome to observe the Sabbath. Please do. It's awesome. And it's also awesome to observe the feast. But must we? Is it a prerequisite to salvation? And or is it somehow uh, uh, completely tied up with um, our sanctification? And the answer is no. Patty shakes her head. No. Uh, Romans chapter 14 verses 5 and 6. This is awesome. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord, and he gives thanks. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord, he doth not regard it, and he gives God thanks. He eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. In other words, you know, be persuaded in your own mind. If you want to do this, that's fine, but it's not, it's not necessary. It's not something you have to do to be saved. Like I said, it, it, it actually helps you grow in the Lord. It's, it's amazing to observe the Sabbath, and it, and it really does help you grow when you celebrate the feast. But you don't have to. It's not something you must do. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 says it a little bit differently. It uh, says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect to a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Amen. That says it pretty well. It's, uh, it's, these things point towards Christ. They are a shadow of things to come and they point towards Christ. It's not something we don't have to eat according to uh, the Mosaic Law, the dietary laws prescribed in the Old Testament. Uh, just as kind of a side note, some people wonder, did the early church uh, uh, observe the Sabbath? Did the early church teach that you must, and that you must observe the feasts, and you must eat according to the dietary guidelines? Nope, it didn't. Um, just didn't. They took after what they saw in the book of Acts. They came together and met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Um, And uh, yeah, there was a mixture of Gentiles and Jews within that church, but they didn't teach that you must. Some of them did, but they didn't teach that it was uh, some kind of a prerequisite to salvation. And so uh, some people will claim that if you're not doing all these things, keeping all the Mosaic law, following the law exactly, you're willfully sinning And it's as if you're trampling Christ underfoot, okay? They might even bring up scriptures like what you see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Uh, And I am going to take a little rabbit trail to talk about this because we're talking about law versus grace. And this is one of those scriptures that, I don't know about you guys, but this scripture really tripped me up for a long time. And the hyper charismatic church that I was a part of wasn't about to help me out. Uh, they would look at something like this and think, yeah, you know. So let me read it. Uh, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Whoa. Seriously. Is that saying that if we sin willfully, as in we know something is a sin, and then still do it, that the only thing we can hope for is death, hell, and punishment? Is that what that's saying? Let me ask you this. Who here has known something was a sin and then still did it? Except for us. And my wife, because she's perfect. Right? Well, you guys are in good company. Paul, he tried not to sin. He knew what the sins were. He knew what the law was. And he still sinned. Uh, In Romans chapter 7, verse 14. But it, it is a long passage to read, but Paul had this struggle. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, for what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. See, Paul struggled with this very same thing. So uh, likewise, John, John, has a different angle on the same issue. Again, uh, showing the fact that uh, we do knowingly sin. There are times when we know something is sin, and yet we do it anyway. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. All right. So everybody breathe a heavy sigh of relief because we can now say with confidence that when uh, the author of Hebrews talks about willingly sinning, uh, that doesn't mean that we know something is a sin and yet we jump in anyway okay paul sins he knows it's a sin he hates that it's a sin he wants to do the right things and he still screws up from time to time and does the wrong thing okay john says if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and we're making god out to be a liar all right so good at least we've got that figured out Uh, That was, again, that was an issue that really bugged me for a long time. So what exactly does it mean when we willfully sin? Well, guys, uh, after looking at this passage, this whole chapter in context, uh, it's, it's obvious that what we're talking about here is willfully rejecting the perfect sacrifice that Christ made. Okay? I mean, in context, when you read the whole of chapter uh, 10 of Hebrews, and if you haven't done this, or, well, if this bugs you, I encourage you to go ahead and read through chapter 10 a couple times. You might even start uh, towards the end of chapter 9 and go a little bit into 11, just to get the whole, just to make sure that this Michael Bohm didn't take the stuff out of context. But when you read it in context and you look at the the subject matter of chapter 10, what you're going to see is there's this whole concept of uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament um, versus the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Okay. In fact, right towards the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats... Could take away sins, and so uh, this author, most likely Paul of Hebrews, goes on and he compares and con- contrasts this perfect sacrifice of Christ versus the uh, imperfect sacrifices of the Old Testament and how they just can't take away a sin. Um, uh, the Day of Atonement is is talked about as well, Yom Kippur. Uh, in verses seventeen and eighteen, the Holy Spirit weighs in. Uh, And says this, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Now, okay, so think on that for a minute. So, uh, where there is a remission of sins because of the fact of Christ's perfect sacrifice, there is no longer an offering of sin, for sin, sorry. Does that make sense? As in, uh, <clears throat> now that Christ has offered himself a sacrifice on our behalf, what could we possibly gain from the sacrificial sy- system? There's nothing that we could get from it. Uh, Christ made the perfect sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices that can help you. Uh, it's it's Christ or nothing. And so uh, the chapter ends... I wish I could go through the whole chapter, but you know we are taking a rabbit trail here. I could easily do an entire one-hour sermon on just Hebrews chapter 10. And hopefully someday, God willing, I will. Um, but uh, jumping towards the end of the chapter, we hear the author encouraging readers uh, that the just shall live by faith. All right? That sounds familiar. The just shall live by faith. And then he warns, those who draw back as in reject Christ's sacrifice and actually go back to trying to being trying to be justified by the law. And so in verse 38 uh, and 39, it says now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition But of those who believe, believe, to the saving of the soul. And so, uh, in conclusion, we know that it can't be talking about those who willingly sin, as in sin on purpose. All right. We all know that there are so, I mean, Paul sinned knowingly. Obviously, John as well. And he says that those who, who say they're without sin are actually lying. Okay. So now they're sinning again. We also know that uh, in context, uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews is talking about or comparing and contrasting the perfect sacrifice of Christ that does take away sins versus the imperfect sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, that could not take away sin. Okay. And so moving on to verse 11, Paul changes gears a little bit. He, he changes his approach from rebuking uh, and, and, well, more of a, 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 an aggressive stance to making more of an emotional appeal to them. So, yeah, he is really angry about this situation, about these Judaizers and what they're doing to the Galatians. But then here, Paul takes it down a few notches and he speaks softly to his brethren in the Galatian church. And so in verse 11, I am afraid of you. Okay, stop right there. That's King James English. It doesn't mean he's like terrified of them. He's afraid for them. Okay, so you could basically say, I'm afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Um, yeah, if you trust in your own works for salvation, you're not trusting in Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you can't be saved. So here, yeah, Paul is is very worried that this church that he has birthed has gone so far astray that at this point, any new converts are not going to be saved. Okay, labor in vain. Uh, these Galatians, it sounds like they were drawing back. They were going back to the Mosaic law and uh, seeking out to be justified by their own works, and so verse twelve, brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are, and you have not and you have not injured me at all. Uh, remember, Paul was a former Jew; uh, he was an observer to the fullest sense uh, of the Mosaic Law, and here he's reminding them that he no longer has to keep the law of the Jews. And in verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. But my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? <clears throat> okay, so he says he would have plucked out, they would have plucked out their own eyes and gave it to him. And he speaks of this infirmity of the flesh. You know, like I mentioned uh, towards the beginning of this, this uh, study, Paul most likely had some kind of an eye disorder. And so anyway, moving on to 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? yeah. You can hear the pain in his voice. Um, And I get this. Obviously, as many of you know, people who have been following this podcast, when you put out truth, when you um, distribute truth, it's offensive. People don't like hearing when they're wrong. And so many... When they hear these words of a friend, I'm trying to give them the truth. Uh, they see that as fighting words, and they make me out to be their enemy. And so we hear Paul: "Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth?" Uh, John the Baptist—he's a great example here. He he tried to warn Herod uh, of his incestual relationship, and look where that got him. You know, he ended up with his head on a platter. Uh, Proverbs chapter 27, verse six, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so, you know, when you're trying to tell people the truth, you know, I'm speaking as a friend, I'm trying to help people out, I'm trying to give them the truth. And and some people will not hear that. Uh, so anyway, it is too bad and Paul here, Uh, Definitely, you can tell he's got some hurt feelings. Uh, Moving on to verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I'm present with you. And so, what in the world is he saying there? They zealously affect you, but not well. Okay, so these... Uh, Judaizers, there's, they're very zealous. And it's not, I mean, it's great to be zealous about things. But when it's not in a good thing, as he says, it's, well, that's not good. Here he is, I mean, these Judaizers are actually leading these Galatians into another uh, gospel. Okay. But then he says, they would exclude you that you might affect them. What, what does he mean by they, they would exclude you? Well, they would exclude you from this faith that Paul is preaching, the gospel, the truth. They would exclude you from the truth of the gospel. And so uh, verse uh, verse 19, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. So we hear Paul here, and he's so concerned about the Galatians and and what is going on here in this false gospel that he actually compares it to travailing in birth. And he says, you know, I travail in birth again because he already uh, had birthed, basically, this Galatian church. And here he's looking at this situation, and now he's travailing all over again trying to to again convince them of the truth of the gospel, the biblical gospel and now he's standing in doubt of them uh, and and here as we move on to verse 21, Paul changes gears a little bit and he starts giving another lesson. he starts talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah again okay? He's going to take this whole thing further, and he starts talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah and their child, Isaac, uh, versus Abraham and his porcupine, concubine, Hagar, (laughs) sorry about that, and uh, their child, Ishmael. And there's this allegory that he brings together uh, illustrating grace versus the law. And so in verse 21, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Whoa. OK, that that is a very confusing passage. At least it was for me for, for several years. What's going on here? Well, we've seen how the Galatians first received the gospel with gladness and thanksgiving. And then these Judaizers show up and corrupt their faith with this other gospel. And so Paul here is saying to them, you who desire to live under the law, have you not read what Moses wrote in the law or the Torah? Okay, so some of you might have sensed a little bit of equivocation going on here because Paul uses the word law in two different senses, okay? You who desire to be under the law, as in the Mosaic law, have you not read uh, the law, as in what Moses wrote, the first five books of of the Bible? Haven't you read this? There's this story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and also Isaac and Ishmael. And so Paul goes into this allegory. And we see this situation where. Um, Abraham was given a promise. Right. We, we talked about that in previous uh, um, chapters. And he was to have a child. Uh, that would be the promised one. Through whom all the nations would be blessed. And Abraham trusted God. And waited for the fulfillment of that promise. Now. Now. Many years passed, um, and I, I, you know, I guess we can't fault the man. Okay, here we are after the fact, and we've got this whole Bible filled with these stories of faith, of of people uh, triumphing in their faith and people utterly failing in their faith, and everything in between, right? But Abraham, he's one of the first, right? He's not one who has a Bible to thumb through. So he had these promises from God, but you know, here's a man who, well, in many ways, knew God better than than us, of course, right? But also, he didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have all those experiences. And so here he was told he was going to have this child of promise. But many years passed, and he's not seeing it. He's not seeing the action. Well, what's going on here? Why? Where's my child? Where's this heir that I've been told about? Well, after a long period of time, Sarah had basically lost hope of this promise, right? And wanting a child, an heir, she approaches Abraham with this proposition. Basically, she says, why don't we do what the nations around us do? We could take our handmaid, Hagar, and make her your concubine, I always have a hard time with that. I always want to say porcupine, and I apologize. Make her your concub- concubine, uh, and then we could have a child and an heir. Okay, We could basically spur on God's promise. And Abraham, walking in the flesh, foolishly accepts Sarah's idea and made Hagar his concubine. concubine. Uh, this union, then, of course, we know, produces Ishmael. Even though Abraham was promised this child through Sarah, Abraham had this slip of faith and tried to push the promise into completion by having Ishmael through Hagar. And so, um, as we move on in this story, Abraham desperately wanting Ishmael to be the one and whom the promise would, would come, uh He goes to God and he petitions God and he says, uh, oh, that Ishmael would live before thee. And he just, he wants Ishmael to be that child of promise. And in Genesis chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, God responds to Ishmael and he says, And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. All right. And so God does bless Ishmael. And he says that uh, he will multiply him exceedingly. Uh, That was a prophecy that most certainly came to pass. Ishmael being basically the the father of, of the Arab people. And we know there's a lot of Arabs now, right? Um, You know, something, a a little rabbit trail that I didn't really take in the sermon because I didn't have time, but I would like to take it now because some people get bent out of shape about how uh, Paul uses the word allegory. Uh, and, And some will argue that Uh, Because Paul used the word allegory, this couldn't be referring to a real historical event, but rather this whole story of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Ishmael, Hagar, all these characters are all just fiction, uh, fiction characters, fictional characters and fictional events that are just aimed at teaching a lesson, some kind of allegorical lesson. But we know uh, that the scriptures are inspired of God and they contain no mistakes. And uh, the Bible is a historical book. It's not a book of, of just-so fictional stories aimed at teaching us lessons. Like some, some people like to make even the first couple book, uh, uh, chapters of Genesis as just some kind of just-so story. Kind of, you know, God's just... Got us all tucked into bed at night and patting us on the head and telling us a story to get us a, you know, give us a little lesson. But the story's just a fake story, kind of like how the leopard got its spots or, you know, how the raccoon got its mask, you know? (laughs) But guys, let's put it this way. And and one day I would love to devote an entire podcast to this one subject. Uh, But Jesus. He trusted the historicity of the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, in so many places, uh, for example, uh, he acknowledged that Adam and Eve were the first married couple. Uh, he, uh, Abel, was the first prophet and was martyred. Uh, he believed the accounts of Noah and the flood. Uh, Lot and his wife, he mentions them, and, and, and that that is historical. Sodom and Gomorrah, um, Talks about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. He talks about all these things as historical real events that really happen. So either Jesus is lying, or he's not the Messiah, or this is very historic, historical. Um, he talks about uh, manna from heaven, the miracles of Elijah, Jonah, and the big fish. So we know the scriptures are true. In uh, John chapter 10, verses 34 and 35 Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, uh, the Bible is accurate not only in things like prophecy and theology and morality and these types of things, uh, but that Scriptures cannot be contradicted or confounded. All right? The Scriptures are true. They're not just so stories. Jesus rebuked his disciples for not believing all of what the prophets had said. Again, showing that he was relying on the historicity of the scriptures. I could go on and on and on on this subject, and I would love to sometime. I would love to devote an entire podcast to that uh, specific subject. But uh, what I have produced in this realm, in this genre of the historicity of the Bible... Uh, you could look at all the podcasts that I've done on archaeology. Because once again, that shows from a secular standpoint that archaeology continues to confirm the historicity of the Bible. And so so now, uh, getting back to this symbolic nature of the story of Abraham, we have this child born of a bondwoman after the flesh, you know, Ishmael. He was born from Hagar. A bondwoman or slave, uh, but Isaac was born of Sarah, a free, just makes you think of grace, free under liberty after the promise. Uh, it would have been absolutely impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child at their age. Okay, they were upwards of around uh, a around hundred years old. Uh, in fact, I think I remember reading that Abraham was somewhere around 110. And uh, Sarah was like 99 to 100. Okay. It would have been a miracle straight from God for Sarah to have Isaac. And like grace, there was nothing that Abraham and Sarah could have done to produce Isaac. It was, get this, a gift. Only God could give. Okay. So we have two women and two covenants. Sarah and Hagar represent two different uh, uh, Covenants, one of works, Hagar the, uh, Hagar, the bondwoman, a slave after the flesh, or, and Sarah, the free woman, after the promise, by grace. Uh, by the way, I, I keep mentioning that Hagar was a bondwoman, a slave, if you will. Uh, if that bugs you, please look up my old series on slavery in the Bible it was back in the day when uh, I was doing 10 to 15-minute podcasts, so yes, it's a little bit of a hassle to download, uh, but it is great, and I've had a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, it's it's Really, it's set a lot of people free, no pun intended, because <laughs> I tell you what, when you're reading through the Old Testament, and you keep bumping into these situations of slavery, and yet you don't really hear God outright um, condemn it, but rather you hear Uh, slavery in many ways actually almost endorsed, it can be very disturbing, very disturbing. But as you listen to the series that I've done and you learn more and more about the biblical version of slavery and what that actually looked like, it was nothing like what we saw here in the South, in uh, America's past, or even slave trade. In fact, you hear in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that men stealers... Those who kidnap for the purpose of slavery uh, or any other purpose for that matter uh, is a punishable crime, punishable, punishable by death. In other words, we know for a fact that people weren't just stealing people uh, and kidnapping them and making them slaves. Furthermore, we find that these slaves, uh, excluding slaves of war, don't want to jump into that just yet, but most slaves were uh, indentured servants. In other words, uh, see, they didn't have government system back then that would collect all kinds of taxes for all kinds of uh, uh, social service type things where suddenly if uh, somebody gets themselves way in over their head in debt and can't pay their debt off, they can just declare bankruptcy, throw up their hands and be like, Ooh, you know, the government and all those taxpayers are going to pay for my free ride and I'm going to walk away from this. No, uh, that's not how it worked. If you got in debt o- up to your eyeballs back then, you would basically sell yourself to somebody, either the person that you owed the money to, or maybe the person you owed the most amount of money to, or somebody yeah. that could pay the debt for you. Right, you would sell yourself into servitude to this person. They were still to love you. They were still, still to treat you like family. You were to uh, celebrate with them, uh, celebrate the feasts. You were mandatory. You had to observe the Sabbath, so you actually got to relax. Um, they treated you well, and they were to tr- they were they were still to uh, teach you the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, Many different things. It, it was it was a really good thing and when you were set free, you were set free with it with like a care package uh, that could help get your life started. It was almost like a little mini business starter. Uh, you were set free with a small uh, flock of animals. so you could start reproducing your own uh, livestock you know and produce your own food, your own milk, right? You were set free with uh, a bunch of seed some wine, uh, and sometimes some silver as well, okay? So you weren't just like, well, you're free, and they push you out the door, and you're like, well, great. Now, I've been uh, a servant for so long, I don't even know what to do. No, you've got your own little starter. You know, you can now make a life for yourself. You had a way to get back into the game, right? So anyway, wow, rabbit trail for you guys. Check out that series if uh, if this is something that you want to learn more about. And so, getting back to Hagar and Abraham, uh, they had to, Hagar and Abraham, they had to work to attain this child, this reward, all right? But then we have Sarah and Abraham, they received it for free. They trusted in the Lord, and he gave them Isaac through a miracle of grace. They received something they didn't deserve, okay? Okay. And, you know, God said to Abraham, in you and your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He did not place, he didn't place any conditions on this blessing at all. It was a divine promise. And so uh, God was doing it. God asked nothing of Abraham in return. So it's a one-sided covenant, uh, as we discussed a couple chapters ago. And so this is what grace is right? And that's why this whole allegory is being pulled together here. Grace doesn't make conditions on those who receive it. It's a gift. It's getting something we don't deserve. So many groups out there teach that grace is something you receive, like the Mormons, after all that you can do. And nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, justified freely by his grace. Freely, meaning gratuitously, right? Uh it's the same word that's translated without cause in other scriptures. For example, um, Jesus was hated without cause, gratuitously. In other words, he had done nothing wrong to earn this hatred. And so likewise, we can do nothing to earn this grace that we've received as a gift from God. And so moving on to verse twenty five and twenty-six, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, but in answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, as it and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Romans chapter seven, verses fourteen through twenty-five, for we know that the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. See, Paul struggled with this very same thing. So, uh, likewise, John uh, has a different angle on the same issue. Again, uh, showing the fact that uh, we do knowingly sin. There are times when we know something is sin, and yet we do it anyway. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right. So, <laughs> Everybody breathe a heavy sigh of relief, because we can now say with confidence that when uh, the author of Hebrews talks about willingly sinning, uh, that doesn't mean that we know something is a sin, and yet we jump in anyway, okay? Paul sins, he knows it's a sin, he hates that it's a sin, he wants to do the right things, and he still screws up from time to time and does the wrong thing. Okay, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we're making God out to be a liar. All right. So good. At least we've got that figured out. Uh, That was again, that was an issue that really bugged me for a long time. So what exactly does it mean when we willfully sin? Well, guys, uh, after looking at this passage, this whole chapter in context, uh, it's it's obvious that what we're talking about here is willfully rejecting the perfect sacrifice that Christ made, okay? I mean, in context, when you read the whole of chapter uh, 10 of Hebrews, and if you haven't done this, or, well, if this bugs you, I encourage you to go ahead and read through chapter 10 a couple times. You might even start... Uh, towards the end of chapter 9 and go a little bit into 11 just to get the whole, just to make sure that this Michael Bohm didn't take the stuff out of context. But when you read it in context and you look at the the, the subject matter of chapter 10, what you're going to see is there's this whole concept of uh, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament um, versus the perfect sacrifice of Christ, okay? In fact, right towards the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 4, it says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so uh, this author, most likely Paul of Hebrews, goes on and he compares and con- contrasts this perfect sacrifice of Christ versus the uh, imperfect sacrifices of the old testament and how they just can't take away a sin Um, uh, the day of atonement is is talked about as well yom kippur Uh, in verses 17 and 18 the holy spirit weighs in uh, and says this their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin Now, okay, so think on that for a minute. So uh, where there is a remission of sins because of the fact of Christ's perfect sacrifice, there is no longer an offering of sin, for sin, sorry. Does that make sense? As in, uh, now that Christ has offered himself a sacrifice on our behalf, what could we possibly gain? from the sacrificial system. There's nothing that we could get from it. Uh, Christ made the perfect sacrifice. There are no more sacrifices that can help you. Uh, it's, it's Christ or nothing. And so uh, the chapter ends. I wish I could go through the whole chapter, but you know we are taking a rabbit trail here. I could easily do an entire one-hour sermon on just Hebrews chapter 10. And hopefully someday, God willing, I will. Um, but uh, jumping towards the end of the chapter, we hear the author encouraging readers uh, that the just shall live by faith. All right? That sounds familiar. The just shall live by faith, And then he warns those who draw back, as in reject Christ's sacrifice and actually go back to trying to being, trying to be justified. By the law. And so in verse 38 uh, and 39, it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe, believe to the saving of the soul. And so, uh, in conclusion, we know that it can't be talking about those who willingly sin, as in sin on purpose. All right, we all know that there are so—I mean, Paul sinned knowingly. Obviously, John as well, and he says that those who who say they're without sin are actually lying. Okay, so now they're sinning again. We also know that uh, in context, uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews is talking about— or comparing and contrasting the perfect sacrifice of Christ that does take away sins, versus the imperfect sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, that could not take away sin. Okay, and so moving on to verse eleven, Paul changes gears a little bit. He he changes his approach from rebuking uh, and and well more of a, a, a an aggressive stance to making more of an emotional appeal to them. So yeah, he is really angry about this situation, about these Judaizers and what they're doing to the Galatians. But then here, Paul takes it down a few notches and he speaks softly to his brethren in the Galatian church. And so in verse 11, I am afraid of you. Okay, stop right there. That's King James English. It doesn't mean he's like terrified of them. He's afraid for them. Okay, so you could basically say, I'm afraid for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Um, Yeah, if you trust in your own works for salvation, you're not trusting in Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, you can't be saved. So here, yeah, Paul is, is very worried that this church that he has birthed has gone so far astray that at this point, any new converts are not going to be saved, okay? Labor in vain. Uh, these Galatians, it sounds like they were drawing back. They were going back to the Mosaic law and uh, seeking out to be justified by their own works, and so verse 12, brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are, and you have not and you have not injured me at all. Uh, remember, Paul was a former Jew. Uh, he was an observer to the fullest sense uh, of the Mosaic law. and here he's reminding them that he no longer has to keep the law of the Jews. And in verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. But my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? <clears throat> okay, so he says he would have plucked out, they would have plucked out their own eyes and gave it to him. And he speaks in this infirmity of the flesh. You know, like I mentioned uh, towards the beginning of this, this uh, study, Paul most likely had some kind of an eye disorder. And so anyway, moving on to 16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? yeah. You can hear the pain in his voice. Um, And I get this. Obviously, as many of you know, people who have been following this podcast, when you put out truth, when you um, distribute truth, it's offensive. People don't like hearing uh, when they're wrong. And so many... When they hear these words of a friend, I'm trying to give them the truth. Uh, they see that as fighting words. And they make me out to be their enemy. And so we hear Paul, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Uh, John the Baptist, he's a great example. Here he, he tried to warn Herod uh, of his incestual relationship. And look where that got him. You know, He ended up, With his head on a platter Uh, Proverbs chapter 27 verse 6 faithful are the wounds of a friend but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful and so you know when you're trying to tell people the truth you know I'm speaking as a friend I'm trying to help people out I'm trying to give them the truth and and some people will not hear that Uh, so anyway It is too bad. And Paul here, uh, definitely you can tell he's got some hurt feelings. Uh, Moving on to verse 17. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected, always in a good thing, and not only when I'm present with you. All right. And so what in the world is he saying there? They zealously affect you, but not well. Okay, so these uh, Judaizers, there's, they're very zealous. And it's not, I mean, it's great to be zealous about things. But when it's not in a good thing, as he says, it's, well, that's not good. Here he is, I mean, these Judaizers are actually leading these Galatians into another uh, gospel. Okay, but then he says they would exclude you that you might affect them. What, what does he mean by they, they would exclude you? Well, they would exclude you from this faith that Paul is preaching the gospel, the truth they would exclude you from the truth of the gospel and so uh, verse seventeen verse nineteen, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. So we hear Paul here, and he's so concerned about the Galatians and and what is going on here in this false gospel that he actually compares it to travailing in birth. And he says, you know, I travail in birth again because he already uh, had birthed, basically, this Galatian church. And here he's looking at this situation, and now he's travailing all over again, trying to to again convince them of the truth of the gospel, the biblical gospel. And now he's standing in doubt of them. Uh, and in here, as we move on to verse 21, Paul changes gears a little bit and he starts giving another lesson. He starts talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah again, okay? He's going to take this whole thing further, and he starts talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah and their child, Isaac, uh, versus Abraham and his porcupine, concubine, Hagar, (laughs) sorry about that, and uh, their child, Ishmael. And there's this allegory that he brings together uh, illustrating grace versus the law. And so in verse 21, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Whoa. OK, that that is a very confusing passage. At least it was for me for, for several years. What's going on here? Well, we've seen how the Galatians first received the gospel with gladness and thanksgiving. And then these Judaizers show up and corrupt their faith with this other gospel. And so Paul here is saying to them, you who desire to live under the law, have you not read what Moses wrote in the law or the Torah? Okay, so... Some of you might have sensed a little bit of equivocation going on here because Paul uses the word law in two different senses, okay? You who desire to be under the law, as in the Mosaic law, have you not read uh, the law, as in what Moses wrote, the first five books of of the Bible? Haven't you read this? There's this story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and also Isaac and Ishmael. And so Paul goes into this allegory. And we see this situation where um, Abraham was given a promise, right? We, we talked about that in previous uh, um, chapters. And he was to have a child uh, that would be the promised one through whom all the nations would be blessed. And Abraham trusted God and waited for the fulfillment of that promise. Now, Many years passed, um, and I, I, you know, I guess we can't fault the man. Okay, here we are after the fact, and we've got this whole Bible filled with these stories of faith, of of people uh, triumphing in their faith and people utterly failing in their faith, and everything in between, right? But Abraham, he's one of the first, right? He's not one who has a Bible to thumb through. So he had these promises from God. But, you know, here's a man who, well, in many ways, knew God better than than us, of course. Right? But also, he didn't have the scriptures. He didn't have all those experiences. And so here he was told he was going to have this child of promise. But many years passed, and he's not seeing it. He's not seeing the action. What's going on here? Why Where's my child? Where's this heir that I've been told about? Well, after a long period of time, Sarah had basically lost hope of this promise, right? And wanting a child, an heir, she approaches Abraham with this proposition. Basically, she says, why don't we do what the nations around us do? We could take our handmaid, Hagar, and make her your concubine, I always have a hard time with that. I always want to say porcupine, and I apologize. Make her your concubine, uh, and then we could have a child and an heir. Okay, We could basically spur on God's promise. And Abraham, walking in the flesh, foolishly accepts Sarah's idea and made Hagar his concubine, concubine. Uh, this union then of course we know produces ishmael even though abraham was promised this child through sarah abraham had this slip of faith and tried to push the promise into completion by having ishmael through hagar and so um as we move on in this story abraham desperately wanting ishmael to be the one and whom the promise would would come uh He goes to God and he petitions God and he says, uh, oh, that Ishmael would live before thee. And he just, he wants Ishmael to be that child of promise. And in Genesis chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, God responds to Ishmael and he says, And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. All right. And so God does bless Ishmael. And he says that uh, he will multiply him exceedingly. Uh, That was a prophecy that most certainly came to pass. Ishmael being basically the the father of, of the Arab people. And we know there's a lot of Arabs now, right? Um, You know, something, a a little rabbit trail that I didn't really take in the sermon because I didn't have time, but I would like to take it now because some people get bent out of shape about how uh, Paul uses the word allegory. Uh, and, And some will argue that Uh, Because Paul used the word allegory, this couldn't be referring to a real historical event. But rather, this whole story of Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Ishmael, Hagar, all these characters are all just fiction, uh, fiction characters. Fictional characters and fictional events that are just aimed at teaching a lesson, some kind of allegorical lesson. But we know uh, that the scriptures are inspired of God and they contain no mistakes. And uh, the Bible is a historical book. It's not a book of of just so fictional stories aimed at teaching us lessons. Like some, some people like to make even the first couple bu- uh, uh, chapters of Genesis as just some kind of just so story. Kind of, you know, God's just... Got us all tucked into bed at night and patting us on the head and telling us a story to get us a, you know, give us a little lesson. But the story's just a fake story, kind of like how the leopard got its spots or, you know, how the raccoon got its mask, you know? <laughs> and, 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 but guys, let's put it this way. And, and one day I would love to devote an entire podcast to this one subject. Uh, but Jesus. He trusted the historicity of the Old Testament, okay? Uh, in so many places, uh, for example, uh, he acknowledged that Adam and Eve were the first married couple. Uh, he, uh, Abel, was the first prophet and was martyred. Uh, he believed the accounts of Noah and the flood. Uh, Lot and his wife, he mentions them, and, and and that that is historical, Sodom and Gomorrah, Um Talks about Moses and the serpent in the wilderness. He talks about all these things as historical real events that really happened. So either Jesus is lying, or he's not the Messiah, or this is very historical. Um, he talks about uh, manna from heaven, the miracles of Elijah, Jonah, and the big fish. So we know the scriptures are true. In uh, John chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, uh, the Bible is accurate not only in things like prophecy and theology and morality and these types of things, uh, but that scriptures cannot be contradicted or confounded. All right. The scriptures are true. They're not just so stories. Jesus rebuked his disciples for not believing all of what the prophets had said. Again, showing that he was relying on the historicity of the scriptures. I could go on and on and on on this subject, and I would love to sometime. I would love to devote an entire podcast to that uh, specific subject. But uh, what I have produced in this realm, in this genre of the historicity of the Bible... Uh, You could look at all the podcasts that I've done on archaeology, because once again, that shows from a secular standpoint that archaeology continues to confirm the historicity of the Bible. And so so now uh, getting back to this symbolic nature of the story of Abraham, we have this child born of a bondwoman after the flesh, you know, Ishmael. He was born from Hagar. A bondwoman or slave, uh, but Isaac was born of Sarah, a free. Just makes you think of grace, free under liberty. After the promise, uh, it would have been absolutely impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child at their age. Okay, they were upwards of around uh, around a hundred years old. Uh, in fact, I think I remember reading that Abraham was somewhere around one hundred ten. And uh, Sarah was like 99 to 100. Okay. It would have been a miracle straight from God for Sarah to have Isaac. And like grace, there was nothing that Abraham and Sarah could have done to produce Isaac. It was, get this, a gift. Only God could give. Okay. So we have two women and two covenants. Sarah and Hagar represent two different uh, uh, Covenants, one of works, Hagar the, uh, Hagar, the bondwoman, a slave after the flesh, or, and, Sarah, the free woman, after the promise, by grace. Uh, by the way, I, I keep mentioning that Hagar was a bondwoman, a slave, if you will. Uh, if that bugs you, please look up my old series on slavery in the Bible, it was back in the day when uh, I was doing ten to fifteen minute podcasts, so yes, it's a little bit of a hassle to download, uh, but it is great, and I've had a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, it's it's really it's set a lot of people free. No pun intended, because <laughs> I tell you what, when you're reading through the Old Testament and you keep bumping into these situations of slavery, and yet you don't really hear God outright um, condemn it, but rather you hear. Uh, slavery in many ways actually almost endorsed, it can be very disturbing. Very disturbing. But as you listen to the series that I've done and you learn more and more about the biblical version of slavery and what that actually looked like, it was nothing like what we saw here in the South in uh, America's past or even slave trade. In fact, you hear in the Bible in the Old Testament that men stealers those who kidnap for the purpose of slavery, uh, or any other purpose for that matter, uh, is a punishable crime, punishable punishable by death. In other words, we know for a fact that people weren't just stealing people uh, and kidnapping them and making them slaves. Furthermore, we find that these slaves... Uh, excluding slaves of war. Don't want to jump into that just yet, but m- most slaves were uh, in- indentured servants. In other words, uh, see, they didn't have government system back then that would collect all kinds of taxes for all kinds of uh, uh, social service type things where suddenly if uh, somebody gets themselves way in over their head in debt and can't pay their debt off they can just declare bankruptcy throw up their hands and be like Woo, you know the government and all those taxpayers are going to pay for my free ride and i'm going to walk away from this no uh, that's not how it worked if you got in debt or up to your eyeballs back then you would basically sell yourself to somebody, either the person that you owed the money to, or maybe the person you owed the most amount of money to, or somebody that could pay the debt for you, right? You would sell yourself into servitude to this person. They were still to love you. They were still to treat you like family. You were to uh, celebrate with them, uh, celebrate the feast. You were mandatory. You had to observe the Sabbath, so you actually got to relax Um, they treated you well and they were, they were, they were still to, uh, teach you the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, um, many different things. It, It was, it was a really good thing. And when you were set free, you were set free with it, with like a care package, uh, that could help get your life started. It was almost like a little mini business starter. Uh, you were set free with a small, uh, flock, of animals, So you could start reproducing your own uh, livestock, you know, and produce your own food, your own milk, right? You were set free with uh, a bunch of seed, some wine, uh, and sometimes some silver as well. Okay, so you were just like, well, you're free, and they push you out the door, and you're like, well, great. Now, I've been uh, a servant for so long, I don't even know what to do. No, you've got your own little starter. You know, you can now make a life for yourself you had a way to get back into the game right so anyway wow rabbit trail for you guys check out that series if uh if this is something that you want to learn more about and so getting back to hagar and abraham uh, they had to hagar and abraham they had to work to attain this child this reward all right but then we have sarah and abraham They received it for free. They trusted in the Lord and he gave them Isaac through a miracle of grace. They received something they didn't deserve. Okay? And, you know, God said to Abraham, in you and your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He did not place, he didn't place any conditions on this blessing at all. It was a divine promise. And so, Uh, God was doing it. God asked nothing of Abraham in return. So it's a one-sided covenant, uh, as we discussed a couple chapters ago. And so this is what grace is, right? And that's why this whole allegory is being pulled together here. Grace doesn't make conditions on those who receive it. It's a gift. It's getting something we don't deserve. So many groups out there teach that grace is something you receive, like the Mormons, after all that you can do and nothing could be further from the truth Uh, you know Romans chapter 3 verse 24 justified freely by his grace freely meaning gratuitously right Uh, it's the same word that's translated without cause in other scriptures for example um, Jesus was hated without cause gratuitously in other words he had done nothing wrong to earn this hatred, and so likewise we can do nothing to earn this grace that we've received as a gift from God. And so moving on to verse twenty five and twenty six, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, but in answereth to Jerusalem, which now is as it and is in bondage with her children, but, but but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Uh, Mount Sinai, answering to Jerusalem, this legalistic system of trying to achieve salvation through your own efforts, versus there's this heavenly Jerusalem that is a picture of grace. Okay? The, 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 the system of trying to achieve salvation by works is being superseded here. By a heavenly system where grace rules, where we are under liberty and we are given salvation by what Christ did. And so when he, when he goes on, uh, verse 26, but Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all, verse 27 for it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travails not, for the desolate hath many more children. Than she which has a husband. Sarah was barren. She couldn't have kids. But through God's grace, she, through this promise, was able to produce Isaac, which then uh, nations came from him, including the Messiah. Well, likewise, through God, or through grace, God is able to produce multitudes of children, children of promise so verse 28 now we brethren as Isaac was are the children of promise and as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit even so it is now ain't that the truth what are we talking about there well the descendants of Ishmael they were they're the arabs the predominant world view amongst the arabs is islam islam is what billion strong and growing rapidly. uh, 23%, they say, I don't know who took this poll, but they say 23% of them are are extremists. Okay? Uh, that's, That's a lot. That's a lot. And they are persecuting the Jews, and they are definitely persecuting the Christians too. Jews and Christians are getting their heads cut off and getting crucified and getting thrown in cages and burned alive Women raped, children raped, it's, it's bad. And that persecution is very serious. And um, I don't see it going away anytime soon until God deals with this. You know, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. But um, yeah, God uh, prophesied this way back then and it is so true even today. Uh, verse 30, nevertheless... What says the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What, what's, what's happening here? Well, sticking with his allegory, basically cast out that old co- covenant system of trying to achieve your own salvation through your own efforts. It's, it's just not going to work. In fact, we know that those who uh, uh, um, don't trust in Christ will be cast out of his presence. So likewise, yeah, just we, we should be casting out that frame of mind. It is through Christ and his perfect sacrifice. Anything less or trying to do anything more is an insult to Christ and an insult to the grace that he's shown us. In verse 31, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Praise God that whole system of sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was very sobering. You know, I, I can't think of anything more sobering than watching an animal making noises and breathing and bleeding all over the ground, dying because of your sins, that animal being sacrificed on your behalf. How sobering would that be nowadays to see that? But Christ comes down to this earth, lives a perfect life, doesn't deserve any of this. But it willingly gets up on that cross and takes the punishment in that same manner for us. Very sobering. It's amazing. It's amazing what God has done for us. God is holy and sin must be punished. Jesus took that punishment for us. And, and so really, you know, if, if there's anybody here or anybody listening online, uh, who hasn't trusted in Christ, who doesn't understand this grace. Maybe you, you consider yourself a good person. You think that you are uh, one of those people that your good deeds far outweigh your bad deeds. Um, know this, that you know, the wages of sin is death. That's one sin. We've all sinned. We all fall short of, short of the glory of God. And we will all be judged Eventually. God is holy and he must punish sin. But yet God himself took the penalty, the wrath that we deserve upon himself. And all we have to do is trust in him. So if there's anybody listening who is not trusted in Christ, it is a free gift. And I would urge you to do that even today. We don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know how long this life will go. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you've shared with us today through your word. Please seal it on our hearts. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, if if there is anybody listening who has not trusted in you, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to them right now and and start working on them. Start showing them the sin in their life and also the fact that they need you, the Savior. We thank you for everything that you've done for us. You've been so good to us. So merciful. Seal this teaching to our hearts. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.